Welcome back, Housing News listeners. This is Alcina Lloyd, and I'm the producer of this weekly podcast, which is a proud member of the Industry Syndicate. Today, you'll be listening to episode 13 of season three, which features Arch Mortgage Insurance Executive Vice President and Chief Sales Officer Carl Tyree. In this episode, Tyree discusses the amount of servicing volume that independent mortgage bankers are retaining and how they managed to navigate the COVID-19 pandemic. Additionally, Tyree explains how mortgage insurance companies work with lenders throughout the forbearance process and explains why the implementation of new technology has been critical for ensuring the mortgage industry's survival. Without further ado, here's this week's episode of the Housing News Podcast. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. This is Clayton Collins, CEO at Housing Wire, and we are back here in early June for another episode of the Housing News Podcast. And thrilled to have our repeat guest, Carl Tyree, the EVP and Chief Sales Officer at ArchMI, coming back to join us for another episode. Carl, welcome back. Thanks, Clayton. It's it's good to be back. Seems yeah, like a long time ago. It was, I guess, it wasn't that long ago. It was really just February, but we got into such good topics. I wanted to come back and, and revisit those, those conversations. And uh, and any of our listeners who didn't get a chance to to hear the original episode, please go back to, to February third and and check out our initial conversation with Carl, because Carl highlighted some things that we need to pay attention to at that time and they really turned out to be pretty um prescient and and topics that we we needed to revisit so carl i want to jump right into it and one of the things that you mentioned in our last conversation was that one of the big trends that we need to watch is the growth of the non-bank originator and the amount of servicing volume that they begin to retain and uh that kind of anticipated place to keep an eye on couldn't have been more spot on as five six weeks later we uh we get into COVID 19 and we start to see some pressure on these on these big servicers so uh we saw margin calls we saw challenges um with forbearance requests and interpreting how they treat those forbearance requests requests and uh and that was just that was all the industry could talk about in in late march and in early april We've made a lot of progress, but with you as a chief sales officer at Arch, I know that you're in frequent communication with the, the leaders at a lot of these institutions, and I want to get your perspective. So how did you see non-bank originators and servicers navigate these hedge obligations and resulting margin calls that they, that they saw in, in late March? I would say by and large, you know, I, I thought they actually handled it incredibly well when you think about the level of volatility and the disruption to the capital markets in such a quick amount of time. And, you know, specifically the focus on the independent mortgage bankers that don't necessarily have instant access to Fed funds and some of the liquidity measures given um, financial institutions, they've done a really good job. You know, I think they had to lean on it. I, I think in terms of some of them had to simply put more capital in when it came to margin calls in, 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 uh, in various aspects of the business. Others, some of the conversations I had, they leaned on historically longer relationships. and They didn't get necessarily complete waivers of, of uh, you know, leverage waivers, but uh, I think if you've got a long relationship with someone, it shows you the relationships still matter, and, and they were given a little bit more rope uh, to get through the, those tying times, trying times. Th- those those long-term relationships those are with their their warehouse lenders and investors sure and, and, and people that uh 
you know, the broker dealers that provide them access to, uh, to MBS securities when they hedge their pipeline, both hedging their servicing rights and hedging their, their active pipeline. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, at the same time that they're, we're, we're seeing this financial pressure, uh, these originators were also shifting their workforces to, to remote work. Um, working through how do you get the technology ready and make sure your team is ready to, to work remote. Um, what, what did you see some of the, the most impactful IMVs out there do during this time period to not only manage financial risk, but also manage that, that operational and human capital risk that they were, were struggling through in that, that five or six week period that was so tumultuous in late March, early April? Yeah, that, that's a great question. There's, it's a pretty broad answer, a lot of different ways to think about it. One thing for sure is you can say 10 years ago, any industry couldn't have pulled this off, much less the mortgage industry. I think there was some rapid adoption of technology that people were kind of on the, the verge of using or already in the infancy stages of using that allowed them to go remote. I know we took roughly 830 people, give or take a few. Uh, and we went within, we probably tested on a Friday and by Tuesday we were, we were stayed home and remote working. So a lot of the customers experienced the same thing. I think what you saw different um, than you saw in the financial crisis was you saw people handling um, volume by, you know, it could be credit overlays. They could kind of be curtailing the, the level of lending they were doing. You saw a pretty widened gain on sale. I think while it was a very tough time during that capital markets disruption, it couldn't be a better time right now to be a mortgage banker. The gain on sales are huge. And if you've, you're capable of being a retained um, originator where you can retain your mortgage servicing rights, I think long term, you're going to have a very, very attractive uh, asset on your balance sheet at a, at a really good basis. So um, I, they've done a great job of handling it. That topic of being a retained originator is really interesting. I think that's what you were, were hinting at as something to watch back in, in February. What are the characteristics or, or strategic considerations that would allow a IMB to, to be a, a retained servicer or, or retained servicing at a certain scale? We certainly have to have capital. And, and when you think about capital, think about in terms of the servicing advances you might be forced to deal with. And certainly in these times of forbearance, um, you know, seller servicers and, and, and servicers of record for Ginny May are responsible for advancing principal and interest on, on all those loans. And, you know, I think you saw the government step in and provide facilities that I know, I think Penny Mac might have been the first one to access it, but I think there's been subsequent lenders since then that have accessed it. And then I think as time moved on, there was some ambiguity in uh, the language around forbearance and and advancing, but you saw the FHFA slowly refine their message and provide additional support for the independent mortgage banker and you know, not having to advance more than four months of payments um, was certainly really helpful. But you know, to go back to your original question, you gotta be well capitalized to retain. Um, and you've also gotta have enough cash to, you know, to uh, you're not getting that cash flow for mortgage servicing rights until over years. Right. So you've got to have the capital and the cash to sustain the business until you until you gather more more cash flow from those rights. 
yeah, it makes a lot of sense and kind of bridges us into the the next big topic. Um, God, almost consistently for the for the last three months, which has been been forbearance. So, so the good news is uh, only seven thousand new requests for forbearance were submitted um, last week, according to Black Knight data. That the bad news is there's over. 4.8 million requests that have been submitted so far, and I believe it's 4.3 mortgages, uh, 4.3 million forbearances uh, in mortgages in forbearance right now. So that's 8.5 percent of outstanding home loans. So a, a really significant amount. And I want to, as a as a leading MI company in the country, I want to get your perspective as how forbearance relates to MI. And I, I know that there there's processes and procedures that you have to work through with your lenders, and and I'm, I'm sure a lot of these were already uh, uh, somewhat determined through like natural disaster forbearance processes. But but I'm really interested in is how does how does Arch and how does MI company work with a lender um, through a forbearance process? Is there like a, a notification process? Is that tech enabled? Like what are the considerations there, and, and how does that work? Yeah, well, you know, I think to address your, you know, kind of your beginning statement, it is, it's quite tragic to see so many people kind of suffering through um, some significant economic stress right now. And those numbers are, sometimes you got to just stop and pause and look, you know, those numbers are just so significantly large. As pertaining to your question, you know, we kind of, we more or less as an industry, uh, on, on this crisis, delegate the the ability to provide forbearance. Like lenders don't have to come to us, servicers don't have to come to us and ask um, for loans that we insure to be forbeared. We, we delegate that process to them. They are required once uh, a borrower goes down 60 days, there's reporting to us. And you see those reporting numbers starting to show up in MI's earnings calls. Uh, but forbearance, let me say this, on the, for, the forbearance story itself, there's a little bit of opaqueness to it. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of stories when you talk to some of these large servicers, there's a lot of individuals that asked for forbearance or uh, took advantage of the option of forbearance only to continue making all their payments on time. And then you've got some borrowers that asked for forbearance, went into forbearance, and subsequently have already uh, reinstated and caught back up. Um, and then we've already seen signs of people that went in forbearance, then got in position to recover, but couldn't necessarily make all those payments. And you're seeing uh, payment deferral solutions and loss mitigation. For GSE servicers, we delegate uh, all those loss mit activities to them. So we, we wanna give the servicer the ability to make live real-time decisions in the best interest of the borrower. Um, and so, you know, the servicer is providing us delinquency data, and most of the time it's coded when there's a forbearance uh, as opposed to something that would not be. Uh, and then we're giving them the power of delegation on loss mit activities, which helps them help the borrowers in a, in a, in a faster pace, for lack of better terms. Is that coded data differentiating between the, those three categories of people who are um, who are still consistently making their payments, who, who may have stopped making payments, and those who've already caught back up? Are, are you seeing that level of data in the in the data flow from your your lender partners? You know, I think for some you do, but for some you don't. It's it's a little bit of an uneven story. Um, but we get pretty good. To, you know, the servicer is both the financial institutions in the independent mortgage bankers, um, I think relative to the financial crisis before, are doing a really outstanding job. I think 
You've seen a lot of evolution in our business and reform since the financial crisis. And I think it's proving to, do, to be, um, uh, they're doing a very good job relative before. And I think that gets better each time as FHFA has provided additional guidance once there was that kind of, you know, how to apply forbearance in the beginning once yeah. we kind of work through those stages. And so when you talk about delegated loss mitt capability, and so that means that the, the servicer has their kind of the breadth of control and, and how they mitigate losses, how they manage that relationship with the borrower. Um, and, and Arch isn't, or Arch or an MI is not uh, necessarily directing that activity or saying like, hey, we need you to, to do it this way to reduce risk. It's, it's fully delegated. I mean, I can't speak for every MI company, but I can speak for Arch that we do delegate loss mid activities on for, for approved GSC servicers. All right, that's that's really interesting. Okay, so one of the thing, one of the stats I saw this week is that uh, only nine percent of borrowers with forbearances have less than ten percent equity, and and one percent are underwater, which seems like a, a really uh, supportive data point that we're we actually have a, a a fair amount of skin in the game from from borrowers who are in forbearance. Are data points like that at a national level uh, something that the MIs think about or, or, or take into consideration when they're when they're managing risk and, and pricing risk? Oh, for sure. I mean, it, you know, when it comes time to pay a claim, um, the thing that matters more than anything else is the value of the property at the day uh, that, that someone files a claim with us. So, you know, seeing the um, home price appreciation over the last several years surely helps the older vintage books uh, that are in our, what we call insurance in force, which is our quote unquote book of business. Um, but what you do, the reality is, you know, a lot of these forbearance loans are going to come back current or they're going to get some kind of workout for a payment deferral solution. Um, and they'll be back current. Uh, unfortunately, I, whether you believe there's a V-shaped recovery or a W-shaped recovery, uh, or you, <laughs> whatever the recovery takes hold, uh, there will be the, the sad reality that some people will lose their jobs and there will be some claims. Um, and so those new loss assumptions are part of how we think about risk today. And subsequently, it has a lot to do with how we think about pricing moving forward as well. The world changed pretty quick um, from a loss assumption standpoint. So for, for lending executives, what what should they know about those those assumptions on on pricing? And we we see from our audience that we get a lot of engagement with with articles about unemployment uh, and GDP and most recently forbearance. So we know that lending executives are looking at the economic drivers for the overall housing economy. Those are also drivers for for insurance across across all types of insurance. Um, risk calculations and pricing. So, so what should a lending exec know about how MI is priced and, and how that world has changed in the last uh, 60, 90 days? Well, there's a couple folds to that. One is, uh, you know, clearly there's new loss assumptions and new loss assumptions are gonna cause change in, changes in price, right? And so I think what you're seeing is most all MI companies have followed our suit with risk-based pricing models is that you'll see volatility. There could be some spots where pricing goes down. There could be some spots where pricing goes up. Um, but there is some additional volatility. And I think the historical context for mortgage insurers is prices stayed very, very static on a very basic rate card for long periods of time. 
and you're not seeing that right now. Um, but there's value in, in appropriately pricing the risk and being prudent risk managers. And that's been our ability to allow other capital market participants in our business. And I said recently on another interview that, um, and I still hold true to this point today, is that through this, this next part of the cycle, I think mortgage insurance as an industry is going to perform significantly better than it did during the financial crisis and subsequently short thereafter right, when MIs were really stressed, is that you've used additional capital market tools, whether it's a classic reinsurance agreement or it's the issuance of mortgage insurance linked notes, that mortgage insurers are better positioned um, and, and more knowledgeable to price the risk appropriately. It seems really obvious how, how unemployment and foreclosure could, could impact your assumptions and, and risk pricing and default assumptions. What about interest rates? Are interest rates a driver of MI pricing? Does, does that come into the model at all? And I mean, it, we're just at such historic lows. It feels like something we should understand all the implications of. Yeah, I would say, you know, mortgage insurance, <laughs> interest rates on mortgage insurers isn't nearly as, um, it doesn't affect pricing as much as it would in, let's say, a mortgage servicing loan. But it does indeed matter, you know, duration and what mortgage insurers call persistency, how long a loan stays on the books. Um, you know, the persistency rates are affected by interest rates. And so when you think about monthly mortgage insurance premiums, we think about interest rates in context of, of premium pricing, but it really matters on single premium loans, where you essentially get one chance to price the risk. And you collect that payment typically at the closing table or shortly thereafter. And when you collect that one-time premium, you're making a, a bet on how long you'll be insuring that loan. And so with lower rates, the lower the rates go, the more likelihood when rates rise again, that, that loan could extend beyond what you thought it would be on the books. Um, and so there's a little bit of sensitivity and, and duration risk when it comes to single premiums. Um, and Arch has been very disciplined in those regards. I think you'll see a, a large majority of our book of business is monthly compared to others. Interesting. So rates could act, low rates actually could act as a counterbalance to other high risk factors in, in the market. So like the duration of a, a someone refining at a, at a 3% 30 year, that that's going to have a, that's going to be a pretty good duration loan. So that, that's a, a counterbalance on pricing and, and risk assumption. Yeah, to some degree. And, and you also bring up a point, the fact that the loan's going to be on the books maybe longer than they historically have, because, you know, a borrower with a 3% or 3.5% mortgage is likely not going to be um, in the money to refi uh, as much as maybe some borrowers have been in the past. And that's why it's really, really important um, to get your loss assumptions right and to appropriately price the risk correctly. And it's okay to be a little bit conservative in times of stress, I think. Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. And um, talking about duration, and we're obviously in a a really hot refi market right now. Uh, that can only go so long, and uh, lenders are gonna have to figure out how they drive volume for on the purchase side of the house for for the better part of the next decade. If um, if we see uh, most of the refi opportunity come to come to the table in the next um, 12, 24 months, I know there's like four point eight billion households, or sorry, 4.8 million households out there that are um, able to be in the money refi right now, but that's, that's going to eventually work its way out. So, so moving on to the, the purchase market, 
Some markets have completely turned back on um, in late May, and now that we're, we're getting to June, and there's been lots of speculation of uh, the spring buying season moving to a, a summer buying season. And I know that you see lots of, of data points uh, at Arch uh, touching so many of the, the major lenders in the country. What are you starting to see and what are your observations in this, this, this thesis of a, a summer purchase season that seems like it's starting to play out? Well, I would say the spring purchase market was uh, a little bit better than maybe all of us expected, you know, and even some of our competitors having listened to some of their earnings calls, I heard some comments regarding the surprise of the spring market. And I, I personally was surprised. I have a lot of the hedge advisory firms send out daily commentary and kind of share some, um, you know, high level numbers of percent of refi versus purchase on pipelines they might manage. And um, while the refi percentage had gotten uh, significantly high as you think it would with lower rates, uh, purchase has kind of held its own, probably more so than many thought. And you are seeing the purchase market um, strengthen. I think it's been pretty strong, albeit down. Uh, but the reality is we came into this scenario, you know, it's not a housing-led crisis, it's a very unique crisis. Um, and we came into this, this crisis with not enough homes in the United States. And compile that now with the fact that there's probably some people that didn't necessarily want to list their home and have people come into their house during uh, this, you know, coronavirus pandemic. So, and, and I was trying to read it real quick. It popped up. Uh, I believe there's an article out by First American just talking about the number of active listings have come down, like the number of available homes for sale has come down. Yeah, right? it was 22% down at the end of May. It was a big, it was a big drop. It is a big number, right? So you're not, you're coming in with not enough houses. And then the people that might have been planning on making a move or selling their home, they've decided to pause that. Um, and so you find yourself with, you know, a basic fundamental de uh, supply demand story and we're lacking supply. So I see here, I live outside the DC area. Uh, you're still hearing of, you know, houses going on the market, ratified contracts by the end of the day, you're hearing multiple offers. Um, I know there's certain geographic areas that's definitely slowed down, but there's certain ones where it's still it's still strong. Within your client base, are are you seeing anybody uh, make any moves in terms of new products or process or marketing changes to to react to this opportunity of a of a summer purchase season? Or are you seeing any specific geographies that are kind of um, where, where lenders are getting a little more aggressive with serving that that purchase market? Well, I think, I think good mortgage bankers never lose focus on purchase. They know that's the sustainable transaction in the marketplace long term. So, you know, thinking about knowing that that's important and having all this volume you had to deal with, you saw people prioritize purchase and continue to prioritize purchase over refinance transaction, letting it take a little longer for a refinance to close and really focus on. Uh, making sure the referral source, the realtor, or the builder is satisfied with the level of service, and making sure the borrower meets their contractual financing contingencies. Uh, and I think that will continue on. Um, I, I don't see that that changing. From a product standpoint, you know, there's been some significant product curtailment. Let's step away from you know the large amount of business that we insure, which is GSE business, and the non-QM market just simply dropped off a cliff. Um, now, I think it started to come back at some level, 
Uh, but I also know there were a lot of mortgage bankers that got caught with some loans on the warehouse line that the conduits that they were selling to, uh, unfortunately, did not buy those assets. So I think people will tiptoe back into that until you've got some broad liquidity available. Um, that's probably not the story for Jumbo Prime, but definitely for the other more um, non-prime oriented or, or bank statement style loans. Yeah, Jumbo has been a big topic for a, a, a big topic with not a lot to say recently. Um, if we when we talk to originators, when I talk to originators, the number one question I always get is uh, any updates on Jumbo? Any, any updates on Jumbo? <laughs> I, I uh, am call, all, often a miss when I, I don't have any updates on on, on Jumbo. Yeah, well, I hate to disappoint, but I'm not going to be able to provide you any updates on Jumbo. It's yeah. just going to take some time you know liquidity disappears a lot quicker than it comes yeah yeah that's uh it'll have to come back it's, it's painful when you talk to originators especially on the coast out in california where it's a, just a jumbo market um where uh if you're if you don't have a not a balance sheet lender it's uh that market just doesn't seem to to be there right now but so Carl, one of the other topics that's come up a lot as we've navigated uh, the COVID-19 crisis is this, this idea that COVID-19 has been the proponent for a great acceleration. And, and we know at Housing Wire that we've been talking about the, the digital mortgage and technology innovation for the better part of a decade. And we've seen a lot. There's been a lot of adoption and innovation, but certainly not at the, uh, at the clip that we had that hoped. And I think a lot of uh, software and solutions businesses had hoped, but it seems like there's been a push um, to start bringing uh, e-closed solutions and, and really trying to create a, an end-to-end -end mortgage process. Um, so as you're seeing so much, as you're interacting with so many lenders, have you seen any notable tech accelerations that are coming from the market um, from, from within Arch or within your client base? Yeah, there's a lot of different ways to think about tech. You know, for me personally, I think about it from a business development standpoint, right? And then I'll talk about it in the, in the broad market, I suppose. But from a business development or a sales standpoint, um, you know, I think we've adopted a lot more video messaging, right? And, and uh, I've had some people that were on the forefront of that. And then you've got some people that are still a little, you know, a little tepid on that. They're not moving so quick. And this has kind of forced their hand. Um, I see us relying a lot more on our, you know, CRM tools um, and trying to make the most productive use of your time and in, in touching as many clients as you can, uh, for sure. From a lender standpoint, I think there'll be a big push for e-notes. Um, I know there's been a delay in getting kind of the, the Ginny piece on that. And a lot of lenders don't want to build two separate processes, right? So if you could do it with Fannie Freddie, but you can't do it with Ginny yet, that might be impeding at some level, the adoption of, of the digital mortgage. I also think there'll be a bigger push for uh, e-notarization legislation. I think that's required in some states. I'm conceptually dangerous on that topic, uh, but I do know that no, you know having things notarized in person was clearly a problem during the, this time frame. The other thing I would address on the technology piece is just seeing the different pieces work together. I don't think lenders could have handled the level of volume without having a robust point of sale system, a POS, and then that POS integrating with the LOS, and the OLS quickly touches all the different vendors in the mortgage process. So, you know, the LOS and the POS been around for a while, constantly being updated, but you really saw full use of them 
especially the point of sale. I did a refinance and I, it's not like I sat down with the loan officer and I, I've dealt with him a long time. You know, I'm very loyal to the, the people I use for, for transactions. Um, but it's, here's a link, fill out essentially the application form. And then we discussed rates and away it went. So. Yeah, that's what I, I uh, we closed on a mortgage during this, the, the COVID crisis and on a purchase. And, uh, I did the the e-notarization process, and it was it was pretty cool to see that to see that firsthand. Um, certainly, it was it was certainly not the the norm. We had to push the title company quite a bit to to figure out how to make that happen. But uh, it was it was cool to go through that process and, and actually show sure. it. It's a small thing, right? Let's get on video and do this notarization. Feels feels so logical, but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So not not why I'm curious. Did you do the final walkthrough in the house? During the, you know, did you go do a walkthrough in the house before you actually settled on it? Yeah, we did the the mask and glove final walkthrough. So there's still wow. some of that in person, okay. uh, in person component, but uh, but we get, at least got the the closing done online, which was which was nice. Yeah, I will say for all the technology adoption, you're seeing a lot of it. Um, I don't think there's ever been a time where people yearn to have human interaction face to face. So, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer that's still going to be an integral part of, of not just society, but of the housing business. You know, we can, we can manage accounts very well um, remotely and with video, but when you talk about growing your business or for people that might be starting a business, um, I, there's just no substitute for face-to-face -face interaction. Yeah, that's a very good point. So, so Carl, I want to wrap up with one one final question, and we're tr trying to to find all the the positives in the the COVID nineteen crisis. And if you could identify one notable positive for the mortgage and real estate markets coming out of coming out of this last sixty days, or the great acceleration, whether it wants to be tech or um, or capital markets or MI, what, what's one what's one notable positive that that you'd highlight that that we need to hold on to as we kind of move to the other side of this? I think looking at the stress period and seeing how well so many people performed. You know, we talk a lot about housing reform and there's always a lot of conversations specifically around GSE reform, recap release, and all the aspects of that. But, you know, I think, I think servicers are performing very well given what they're up against. And I think uh, specifically for me, mortgage insurers, I think we're really gonna shine as an industry post this cycle on, you know, paying claims and being well capitalized. Um, so, you know, when we talk about housing reform, you know, housing reform has happened in incremental steps. And through this stress period, you're seeing the housing industry perform well. And so when I think about a silver lining, I, you know, I try and focus on the positive aspects. Um, and I think in the aggregate at the 50,000 foot level, that's one of the biggest positives I take away is that as an industry, we continue to serve homeowners very well. And the housing system is functioning well. That's a that's an excellent perspective. I think so many people came into this thinking that well, the last recession we were in was a housing recession, so of course there's going to be a major uh, a major dent or a major component of of this crisis, this recession uh, that's related to housing, and we've we've shown some strength. That's a that's a really notable positive, for sure, for sure. Well, Carl, I appreciate you coming back for, for a second episode of Housing News to revisit this, uh, this conversation that we started in February. Um, I'm excited to do it again and uh, really appreciate you sharing your expertise. 
Hey, always, always good to spend time with you, Clayton. Thanks so much for the time. I appreciate right. it. Have a good one. Thank you very much, everybody, for listening today. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Housing News Podcast. Please don't forget to give us feedback and rate us on iTunes. Also, make sure to check out HousingWire's latest podcast, The Daily Download, which is a daily wrap of HousingWire's hottest stories, now available on Spotify, Google Podcast, and more.